Spark Media presents Cosmic Creatures by Jason Kent Nord. Performed for you by Adam Anagnostu, Mike Kelly, John Yonker, and Luke Langfeld. Sound design by Dan Steffens. This episode contains content that may be alarming to some listeners. Please check the episode notes for more detailed descriptions. And now, Episode 2, Dark Matter. Something's wrong. My alarm hasn't gone off yet. I jilt awake, overcome with an uneasy worry that I've overslept. It's that sort of wake-up where you feel the panic of being late for something and the shame of not already being up. I glance at my hand-me-down alarm clock that I got from Dad a few years ago and see it's a little after seven. Seven? What happened to my 6.15 alarm? And then realization provokes a wave of relief that washes me back onto the pillow. Damn it, Kale. It's Sunday. Thank God. No school. I've got one more day of peace. I consider going back to sleep, but eh, it's too late. At this point, my thoughts are already racing through all the things I hope to do today. Or what Dad might expect me to do. I consider what to start with, but something feels off. I try and rub the fog from my eyes, which is more about cajoling my brain to function than anything. It's quiet in the house. Strangely quiet. Usually, Dad's snores are rumbling like a freight train, but I don't hear him through the wall. I sit up, apprehensive, and swing my legs off the side to meet the floor. It would be really weird for him to be up already. He's not really a tackle-the-day, rise-and-shine guy. Oh, God. Did he not make it home again last night? I don't remember him going out to the bar, but maybe he went out late? Ugh. I hate it when this happens. I spend all morning not knowing what to do, wondering if the police will show up at the door. Then, when I'm at my wit's end, he inevitably stumbles in through the front door with a pitiful apology and false promises that it won't happen again. He'll reek of alcohol and look pathetic. His clothes will be disheveled, like he got thrown around or slept on the ground, or both. His hair will be mussed up and his stubble thick. His eyes, those will look the worst. That's when I'll ditch him and retreat to the woods for the rest of the day. Initially out of spite, but maybe it's just self-preservation. It's been a while since he's done this. Maybe two months, but today would probably be the seventh or eighth time this year. I stand and hop from foot to foot a few times to warm up. The flooring is cold against my bare feet. I throw on my favorite, but very well-worn sweatshirt and crack open the bedroom door. The hallway is quiet. It makes the hair on my arms stand up. It's so quiet the clock in the kitchen seems to tick louder than usual. Tick. 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 I reach the kitchen and a wave of disappointment washes over me. Dad's not here. He's done it again. At first, the kitchen table looks just how I left it. With some junk mail and dirty dishes to one side and my journal and a couple of my books to the other. But there's a bad omen intruding upon my things. An empty whiskey bottle. Oh boy. Dad has been diligent about sticking to beer since his last fall from the wagon. This isn't good. I can feel the dread crawl through my insides. Every time I worry if this is it, if this is the time he's finally drunk himself to death. I rationalize that the bottle must have been near empty when he started, and he went out for more. Or maybe it was enough that he passed out here? I peek into the living room. He's not there. Tempted to go check his room, but... Screwed. For once, I'm tired of worrying about him. Let me at least get breakfast first. 
I go back to the kitchen and pull open the cabinet door. It's loose, with one hinge barely still attached. Dad promised he'd fix it, but like his other promises, I'm still waiting. There's just enough cereal left for one bowl. We don't have any milk, but I check the fridge anyway. Nope. I just grab a spoon and take my bowl to the table. I dig in, lifting a cherished full spoon into my mouth. Breakfast is dry and crunchy. Crunching down on it is almost cathartic in a way. A sight forces me to pause mid-chew. Under the corner of the whiskey bottle is a folded sheet of paper with my name scrawled on it in Dad's handwriting. It looks shaky and sloppy, as if each letter took effort. This is a first. The nervousness swells so quickly within that I shudder a bit. Dropping my spoon, I force myself to swallow my dry mouthful. I pick up the note, unfold it, and read. Dearest Kale, you're an incredible boy. So gifted, but so cursed to be stuck with a lousy father. I failed you in every way. No, I involuntarily retort as a coldness surges through my veins. I reread the beginning again, not wanting to continue. My hands are starting to shake. I force myself to go on. I can't kick the bottle or this depression that's got hold of me. I have no clue how to support you. I'm broke in every way. The bank will soon take the house. Sometimes a guy just cannot cope with what life throws at him. I cannot take you down with me. It's time for me to get out of your life. I don't know where I'll go, but please don't look for me. My brain spasms. It doesn't compute. I reread. It's time for me to get out of your life. I don't know where I'll go, but please don't look for me. I'm shaken by the punch, like the wind got knocked out of me. Heartbreak and, and disbelief wrestle within. My head and heart both suffer. There's no way, no. No, no. My tear ducts kick in a gear, but I blink the heavy drops away to read on. I know you and I were the only family we had left, but I think we both know you'd be better off with no family than a dad like me. I believe in you. I hope you never give up on yourself. Please, take this note to the Hagens. They're a good family, and I pray they will take you in and give you a better life. I'm so sorry, kiddo. I'll always love you. Dad. I toss the note down and explode from the table. This isn't real. No, it can't be. I put my hands on the table and take slow, measured breaths. It's not real. You'll be back soon. I should clean up so he forgets. I grab the whiskey bottle and junk mail and shuttle them to the recycling bin. Okay, now the dishes. I take them to the sink and flip on the faucet. I stand at the sink, faucet running, but I'm frozen. It's as if my hands don't know what to do. Like they've been turned into stone and can't recover. I just stand there, watching the water run over the dirty dishes. Some of the dried mess winces away, but much of it stubbornly remains. I grab the scrubber and fumble it over a fork. It's not... My eyelids fill with tears. I drop the fork and grab a plate, batting away the tears that fall into the sink. My hands tremble. My balance wavers. The plate slips to the linoleum floor, shattering. I feel the shattering within. The denial breaks like a dam. I sink to my knees amidst the broken shards, not caring if they pierce me. It couldn't compare to the pain drilling to my core. Convulsive sobs take over and I collapse into the fetal position. My sweatshirt cushions my arms and torso, but I can feel needling through my flimsy pajama pants. I don't care. I'm barely breathing and writhe around desperately, trying to take in air. All I can think is that this can't be happening. This can't be happening. This can't be real. No, no, no. 
I cry out before uncontrollable sobbing resumes. First, my mom. And now this. But as much as I want to deny it, part of me knew a second tragedy like this would come. Part of me wondered how long he would hold it together. I feared his arrest. I feared another accident or alcohol poisoning. I even feared suicide. But leaving? He left me? It's not possible. I desperately want to hug him or my mom or anyone. Instead, I can only sob on a hard, dirty, linoleum floor. I'm all alone. No one loves me. It's time to get ready for church. Honestly, I'd rather do anything else, but it's important to Nancy. And I guess we have made a few decent connections with some folks there. You know, there is something to be said for a bit of socializing. But during Mass, my mind never follows the readings or rituals. Instead, it's when I reflect on work. I glance over at a few copies of my recently published textbook sitting on the dresser, Advanced Quantum Physics, Elliot Hagen. Ph.D. Funny enough, it was during Mass one Sunday that the avoidance theory came to me. So I guess, in a way, science is my religion. I'm just putting on my tie when the unexpected double note of the doorbell ringing catches me off guard. At this hour? I check my watch. It's nearly 9 a.m. Who on earth is going door-to-door this early? Well, I guess that's one way to catch people at home but I don't think you're going to earn any favor invading people's Sunday mornings. I open the door, ready to decline whatever or whoever it might be, but nothing could have prepared me for the sight that confronts me. It's Kale, the neighbor boy, Nick's friend, and he's clearly in crisis. Red eyes, disheveled hair, and still wearing pajama pants, hands jammed into his well-worn sweatshirt, his eyes quickly dart from me to his feet. A flutter of worry races through my chest. Kale? What's wrong? The boy says nothing, but simply pulls out a crumpled piece of paper from his pocket and extends it to me. He lifts his gaze slightly with pleading, teary eyes. I take the crumpled paper from him, and as soon as I do, he drops his head, jams his hand back into his pocket, and refuses any more eye contact. The note is a bit damp and torn on an edge. Kale's name is scrawled on the front. I wait a moment to examine it further. I need him to tell me what's happening, but all I get is a sniffle. I don't understand why this distraught boy is here giving this to me. So after a moment, all I can do is open it and see. As I unfold it, it doesn't take too long to realize the notice from his father. I feel uneasy, like I'm invading their privacy. I hesitate a second before reading. Can't kick the bottle or this depression. I'm broken every way. Don't look for me. Wait. Oh my God. Russell left him. For Kale's sake, I try to maintain a poker face. And then I read, please take this note to the Hagens. I pray they will take you. Wait, what? I'm utterly gobsmacked. It's incomprehensible. How could his father do this? That's not something I could ever... I mean, I just... How could he think this is okay? His own son! Oh, Kale. 
what can I possibly say to this poor kid? He appears to sink further into his hunched posture, as if he feels my gaze. I don't know what else to say, but... Come on in, son. What do we do here? I ask Nancy in a hushed whisper as we finally get a chance to huddle in the kitchen. Kale sits alone in the dining room around the corner, poking at the pancakes she whipped up for him a few moments ago. We quickly agreed it was best to skip church today, and I've already discarded my tie. Nancy, still in her dress, has thrown on a flower-dusted apron and gone into full motherly host mode. The poor boy. I just want to help, laments Nancy, whisking a bowl of egg yolk. I just feel bad we didn't connect with Russell enough. After Maria passed, we never really reached out. I always felt like we should have had them over for dinner every now and then. I, I just... Nancy, I interrupt. This isn't on you or me. Russell retreated into a shell long ago and got incredibly private. He didn't care to chat. Having him for dinner wasn't going to cure alcoholism or get him to open up. I think back to the few attempts at interaction we've had over the years while doing yard work. Whenever I saw him, he was quick with a forced smile, nod or wave, but equally quick to turn away back to his business. Even when it seemed he was drunk, he wouldn't be chatty. The wave might be bigger and I might get a... Howdy, Doc. But he was never interested in any conversation. We could have offered anyway, she whispers in retort, and we both sigh. All I can do is shake my head. Nancy, what do we even say to him? What kind of father, even an alcoholic, out-of-work one, does that to their own child? I mean, could you even imagine doing something like that to, to Nick and Ellie? Elliot, keep your voice down, she hisses pouring the yolk into a heated pan to scramble. I've never felt so awkward in my life, I whisper loudly enough to be heard over the simmering eggs. What do you say to a kid in this situation? Nancy hands me the spatula. Here, she says, you scramble and I'll go talk to him. She puts on a wide smile and leaves me alone at the stove. Nancy is the best. Her hugs and attention since greeting Kale at the door seem to have been exactly what the poor boy needed. I don't even know where to begin. But Nancy swoops in and tackles the situation like a professional. I spy over toward the doorway as she pats Kale on the shoulder, retrieves the salt and pepper shakers from the center of the table, and moves them closer, saying something about the wonders of a good meal. Looking back to the eggs, I can't help but think that Kale's now in the fryer too. God Almighty, it'll take years or, or a lifetime for the poor kid to come to grips with his world exploding like this. I can't even begin to imagine the therapy he'll need. We need to help in some way, but this is hardly a situation anyone could be prepared to face. I mean, where does a person even begin? Nancy returns with Kale's empty glass and proceeds to the fridge to refill it with orange juice. Elliot, Kale is a smart kid. I think you'd be so good for him. Well, as quiet as he's always been, it doesn't take much to see he's sharp. Nick told me that he's two years younger than him. Skip two whole grades. Nancy gives me a look like I focused on the wrong part of what she said. You're really considering this, this whatever it might be, I acknowledge with a sense of being overwhelmed. She departs the room with the juice, leaving me to my thoughts. I mean, would I be good for him? Sure, I could connect with him intellectually, maybe. 
but I'm not so sure about being able to emotionally support him. Nick and Ellie have both been well-adjusted, independent kids who do well in school, have friends, compete in athletics, and take part in all manner of activities. Fathering them pretty much involves just showing up. And even that can be tricky at times, being so busy with work. But Kale is completely different. Quiet, withdrawn, from a broken home, and now this trauma. Where would I even begin? Nancy returns and motions me to scoot aside for her to finish the eggs. God only knows where else he'd end up, she probes, giving me a look that says, I'm in if you're in. I glance over at Kale, sitting so lonely, head drooped, poking at his food. I step out of his sightline so as not to be caught staring. Nancy, this is a lot. She turns off the burner, removes the pan, turns to me and counters... Yes, but we can do it. He's a sweet kid. We have to. With that, she's off to the dining room to serve the eggs. It's not that I'm opposed. It's that I'm not ready. Nancy is great at improvising. I'm a planner. Nancy returns, sets the pan in the sink, and looks to me to speak. The question of our willingness to take him in isn't so simple, I start. No matter what we might think at this moment... There's a process ahead that we can't fully understand right now. There's the whole matter of what happens if Russell is found by authorities, or what county social services would have to say. Maybe they would be required to send him to foster care somewhere, or perhaps boys' homes are still a thing. Uh, but maybe they'd be happy to place him with us if we're going to embrace that solution. There's a lot of uncertainty for sure, Nancy concedes. But for Kale's sake, Elliot, I think about it. Kale's only got a couple of years of high school left, and I suppose we could afford the extra college tuition if it works out. It's not as long of a commitment as it would be for a younger child. I suspect we could handle whatever legalities might surround fostering or adoption. It's probably something we could manage. But all that aside, it feels like a moral duty and the only humane thing to do. I give Nancy a nod as I say, let's see how it goes. We move into the dining room and take seats across from Kale. He barely looks up. Kale, I engage gently. You are welcome here. You know that. We'll have to contact the county. There are social services people who deal with these things, and I don't know what the processes are. But we'll tell them that we'd be happy to have you stay here with us. I hesitate to bring up the next bit, but the kids should be prepared. I'm sure they'll want to try to find your dad and investigate what's going on with him. Kale sits stiff and still, clutching himself in his own arms. My heart aches for him. Whatever happens, I say, looking a little worried at Nancy and trying not to sound it, Nancy and I want to help you out as much as we can. Does that sound okay to you? Kale nods and even looks up to make eye contact. Fresh tears form, making his eyes grow glassier. He looks back down again and his shoulders shake. Nancy circles around the table and scoops him up into her arms. He's hesitant at first, but relents and sinks into her embrace. I can only sit in disbelief. As someone accustomed to tackling life with a reasoned scientific approach, I feel as though the emotions of this moment are tearing at the fabric of space and time. I'm feeling truly shaken in a way I've never experienced.
Sitting in the Hagen's living room with Nick's mom and dad, I found myself emerging from the black hole that consumed all my emotions and mental acuity, and which left me rather comatose for the past couple hours. It took me quite some time to get off the floor and carry my burden to the neighbor's door, and then it seemed like I stared at that doorbell for half an hour. Now, I've been given a lifeline. With it, my awkwardness and anxiety are coming back to me. Nick's parents are both staring at me like I'm some zoological marvel. No one says anything, it's all so unnatural. Dr. Hagen stands and wanders a few paces toward the stairs. Nick! Ellie! He calls abruptly. Yeah? Shouts down a muffled voice. Oh, crap. My anxiety spikes, and suddenly I feel stupid that I didn't even think about this. Nick and Ellie, how will they react? My body goes warm with embarrassment. Come down here, please! Dr. Hagen calls up. The ravaging trauma of the morning, however, has numbed much of my normal intensity. I don't have my typical flight instinct. Uh, I have nowhere to go. No deeper depth to fall. Still, this impending encounter is really messed up. As far as Nick goes, I feel like I'm about to upset the equilibrium of our perfectly fine relationship, where a cool kid like him can have a geeky friend, so long as the relationship exists in small doses of his choosing. Now I'm going to be a burden. I don't want to become a Fitch-like nuisance. And then Ellie... Oh, God. Just put me out of my misery now. I was barely fine admiring her from the shadows. Stepping into her spotlight will be like being in the center ring of a horrific circus. She'll see me for the freak show I am. I'll have to keep my head down and stay out of her way. I should have moved into the cave. Ellie patters down the stairs first. In one brief peek, I can see her confident optimism replaced by confused curiosity. I fear whether disappointment and annoyance lurk behind the confusion, but knowing her, she's probably genuinely concerned by the sight of my misery. I can't help it. It's the state I'm in. I cannot manage to compose a proper front today. I wonder if I ever will again. Nick trails moments later. I can't look. I hear his descent stop a few steps short. Kale, he says, as he finishes the last two steps. I sense them both standing there near the bottom of the stairs, waiting for an explanation. Their father provides it. Kids, Kale is going through a bit of a difficult time. If that's not an understatement, I consider to myself. His father left him, and he could use our support right now. Wait, what? Nick is properly shocked. Oh my god, seriously? Ellie echoes softly. I keep my head down, staring at my trembling hands as Mrs. Hagen, seated to my right on the couch, gently rubs a supporting hand across my back. It helps. I haven't had any maternal contact that I can remember in my life. It sends a wave of care through every cell of my body. It feels good. Yes, Dr. Hagen continues. Wrote Kale a note and left before he woke up. Seems their house is nearing foreclosure and his dad is in a bad way. In a bad way is about the nicest way to put it. For as much pain, anger, and fear have been ripping me apart, I do feel sorry for Dad. I guess I still love him on some level. I'm scared that he's going to hurt himself. I'm scared that I'll truly never see him again. Of course, I also hate him. How could he do this to me? Those thoughts are quickly tabled as I realize that Ellie is taking a seat on the couch to my left. She reaches out a hand and rests it on my forearm. I'm so sorry, Kale, she comforts. My trembling stops as I freeze. I can't compute what's happening. 
in shambles. A stupid, childish crush should have no place in this moment. And yet, here it is. It's going to disintegrate soon enough, I'm sure. It's all too much. Kids, your mother and I have decided to welcome him into our home while everything gets sorted out, Dr. Hagen says. Nick and Ellie are quiet. I get it. Their dad, thanks to my dad, just dropped a bomb on them too. I've often felt out of place, but now more than ever. I wish I had never been born and spare everybody of the trouble of... me. Where will he sleep? Nick finally breaks the silence. There's a note of concern in the inquiry, and though I haven't been inside Nick's house too many times, I don't think they have a spare bedroom. I'm invading his territory. You two will share your room, his dad replies, and though I cannot see it, I can tell there's a firm look indicating the matter is not up for discussion. Another layer of guilt and shame piles onto my pitiful existence. Yeah, cool, Nick says, as if either genuinely or dutifully erasing the question. It's great to have you, he welcomes me awkwardly. You know, considering, I mean. I'm sorry about your dad, I... Crap, I don't know what to say. I nod, looking up. We make eye contact. Seeing his concern, I can't stop the tears that involuntarily and impossibly erupt from what I had thought was an empty well at this point. How much can a person cry before they go dry? I wither into a shell and will myself to stop and calm down. It physically hurts, and for a moment I feel like I'm having a serious medical problem. Like an actual heart attack or something. It shocks me like a defibrillator. But with a weird choking sob, I successfully shut it down. Ellie lets out a soothing, sympathetic, Oh... She moves her hand to my shoulder. Her mother resumes the comforting strokes across my back. It's such a foreign experience, like I've been sucked out of my world into some new dimension. Actually, a new dimension could be okay. You know, considering. We're all seated around the Hagen dinner table. Dr. Hagen, Mrs. Hagen, Nick, Ellie, and me. The misfit and burden. I try not to squirm in my chair. It's an uncomfortably quiet dinner. But at the same time, it's an interesting experience. A family and their guest seated together for a home-cooked meal. I've never had this before. At least not that I can remember. The usual microwave dinners in front of the TV with my dad aren't really the same experience. Feels like I'm in some 1960s television show. It's another strange... I'll be a quiet moment on a day full of strange events. Dr. Hagen went out and purchased a bunk bed earlier. And between building that and hauling my stuff over from the house, we sufficiently made a giant mess. Nick's room is a physical reflection of the explosion of my life, but it's starting to come into order, whereas I am not. Not even close. It was nice spending much of the day doing something other than drowning in sorrow. Physical activity and a task with a purpose can be an unexpected lifeline, but the fact of my brokenness stayed with me all day as we added my belongings to Nick's room. Nick has been great, though. He's such a cool guy, but I know what he really must be thinking. He has to be pissed. I told them I would stay in the garage, but they wouldn't have it. I also divorced myself from a bunch of my things, insisting that they were old, broken, or unused when most of it was stuff that I actually still wanted. At least to the extent that I wanted anything anymore. Tough crap. My life has been smashed apart. It's collateral damage. It's particles in the Large Hadron Collider being shattered off in every direction. 
I only needed to keep a few things for appearances and all. My life is over. I haven't had any appetite all day, but this meal that Mrs. Hagen has prepared smells good enough that I venture into the task of finally getting some food in me, with an ounce of interest. I've had mashed potatoes at school, but these are way better. I braved my first encounter with broccoli by considering it punishment. Surprisingly, it's not bad at all. She did something to season it. If I weren't in such a state of emptiness, this would be the best meal I've ever had. As things stand, however, the deliciousness of the food is only a curiosity. I just cannot escape feeling like a zombie. Except, I suppose, an appetite is the one thing zombies have. Breaking the awkward silence, Mrs. Hagen says, Kale? Nick says you're good in science and math. I can only muster a timid shrug and add a nod to be polite. She doesn't know I consider my aptitude more of a curse than a blessing. Daddy has your book, Nick adds, savoring the juiciness of the fact. Not in a mean way, though. Nick isn't like that. Dr. Hagen is genuinely surprised and turns to face me. Ellie and Mrs. Hagen pause with their loaded forks half-raised to exchange looks that are equal parts disbelieving, dumbstruck, and impressed. Really? Dr. Hagen asks delightedly. Quantum physics at your age? Is it for extra credit? I don't want to say that I just got it for fun and because I know he wrote it, so I nod. What did you think of it? Distracted a bit by the looks that Ellie and Mrs. Hagen exchange, I respond too quickly. It was okay. Some stuff was wrong. Oh crap. Did I just say that out loud? Everyone stops and stares at me like I'm some alien creature. I need to say something else to not be such a complete jerk. Uh, but the Higgs field avoidance theory was really interesting. I thought that was really cool. I pray that Dr. Hagen seizes on that and doesn't ask me about what I thought was wrong. How stupid of me to insult him when he's doing so much for me. Dr. Hagen studies me. A grin forms the longer he stares. Nick and Ellie exchange smiles that say they are more delighted than disgusted by how much of a dork I am. Or maybe they're reveling in someone younger than them calling out their incredibly smart father. Kids, I have an idea, Dr. Hagen says. How would you like to skip school on Friday? Nick's and Ellie's surprised smiles grow bigger. Elliot, Mrs. Hagen starts with a furrowed brow. A silent conversation passes between them and her puzzlement seems to dissipate, raising my hope. It won't hurt any of you to miss one day, Dr. Hagen says. And I can take you all to work with me. Give you a tour. Show you the project we're working on. He's saying this to all of us, but his eyes have been strayed from mine. Nick and Ellie are a little less enthused now. But I'm all about it. You miss school? Yes, please. See some real science projects? Yes, please. Anything to feed my mind something other than despair would be perfect. No school? I'm game. Nick decides without hesitation. Ellie seems to debate her vote until a thought occurs to her. Can we stop at the bookstore after? We hope you've enjoyed Cosmic Creatures, a Spark Media production. This program was directed and executive produced by H.G. Zeisler, featuring the voice talents of Adam Anagnostu as Kale Rhodes, Mike Kelly as Russell Rhodes, John Yonker as Dr. Elliot Hagen, and Luke Langfelt as Major Roggy. Text copyright 2022 by Jason Kent Nord. Illustrations including cover and episode art by Meredith Tooby. Sound design by Dan Steffens. Story edits by Emily Nord and H.G. Zeisler. A special thanks to our founding Spark storytellers. Rest assured that no animals, cosmic or earthly, 
were harmed in the production of this episode. Enjoyed what you heard? Check out more Spark stories and find out more about Spark Media on our website, sparkmedia.com. That's S-P-R-Q-M-E-D-I-A dot com. Or check us out on Instagram or Facebook at Spark Media. Links and episode notes. Interested in telling stories? Apply to be a Spark storyteller today. We're looking for writers, editors, composers, voice talent, and more. It takes a village to tell a story, and we need you. Link in episode notes. Audio production copyright 2024 by Spark Media LLC, all rights reserved.